Hi and welcome to Season 2 of Image Talks Fertility in partnership with Waterstone Clinic. My name is Dominique McMullen and I'm Image Media's Editorial Director and I'm delighted to be back for Season 2. Fertility is a deeply emotional and personal topic. I'm lucky enough to have two boys, age three and one, and it has been some journey and not always an easy one to get me here. In this series, I'm going to be talking to men and women about their fertility journeys. We're going to touch on the highs and the lows of their experiences and hopefully be informed and inspired by them. We'll also be hearing from Ireland's leading experts in fertility, many of whom come from Waterstone Clinic, our partners in this podcast. Waterstone Clinic is renowned for their exceptional patient care, and they're bringing the most advanced fertility services to patients across Ireland today. They've also been doing it for 20 years, so they really know what they're talking about. So, listener, get comfortable, maybe go get a notepad, and let's talk fertility. In this episode, we're talking about a treatment that we don't often hear about when discussing fertility options, and that is donor egg treatment or egg donation treatment. And that involves a patient using eggs that have been donated by another woman. To donate to the recipient, a donor undergoes a round of IVF to collect her eggs, and when the eggs are collected, they're fertilized with sperm and the resulting embryo is transferred to the recipient's uterus. It's a complicated topic, and that's why I'm so delighted to welcome Dr. Ethna Lowe here with us today. She's a highly experienced consultant in reproductive medicine who leads the team in Waterstone Clinic. So, Dr. Lowe, welcome. Thank you very much. (laughs) Lovely to have you. Um, I suppose the place to start really is who is looking at egg donation? At what point in your kind of fertility journey would you be given the option to go for egg donation treatment? So the majority of women that we discuss egg donation with are women who are trying for a pregnancy later on in life. Um, And so as women get older, the egg quality declines Mm. and it gets to a point where they are no no longer able to conceive using their own eggs. And so that is usually the point that one considers egg donation. Unfortunately, it also can happen to younger women who have Mm. a low egg reserve and they weren't aware that they had no eggs left and so they go into an early menopause and so those women are also very suitable for egg donation and you know it's those are the two main groups Mm. um, you know that we would offer it to. And do you see is it a common treatment in Ireland? Is it something that people are taking up a lot or more recently? Yeah I mean the the short answer is yes very common I would discuss it with at least two to three women every single week. Wow. Purely because, you know, women are meeting Mr. Right later on in life, they're leaving, you know, getting pregnant later on in life or they're older coming back for their second child sometimes as well. But the bottom line is, is we don't actually know how common it is in Ireland because we have no registers. There's no record of egg donation treatments kept. And a lot of women, even though some come through our clinic, they're actually referring themselves abroad and they're doing treatment abroad through clinics in countries outside of Ireland. And so nobody has any idea how many people are doing treatment in that way. But, you know, I would imagine it's extremely common. But two to three people, you talking to them, two, three people a week is a lot. Yeah. I'm not saying they all take it up, but, you know, it's it's an option that is discussed, you know, in women who are getting to an age group where 
you know, their own IVF may not, you know, with their own eggs may mm. not be so successful. And do you find people are apprehensive about the treatment? I mean, having having had two seasons now of Image Talks Fertility, mm-hmm. it's actually not a topic that is brought up that often. Um, and I wonder if there's stigma around it or if people just aren't aware of it or if, or if there's apprehension about it. Oh, very apprehensive. You really? know, I suppose the bottom line is they know that this is their last option, mm. you know, but they know that the baby will not be their own genetic baby. Mm. And so there's a lot of, you know, questions and issues that you have to discuss with these women and you know uh, equally there are women who hadn't even heard of it so it it sounds very alien to even consider that as an option you know and then you know there may be people who feel that you're playing with nature but you know at the end of the day you know these pregnancies from egg donation babies would not be created unless that person wanted to be a mother and that embryo would not be implanted in her unless she wanted to be a mother Mm. and so Is it genetics or is it, you know, nature or nurture? And, you know, the vast majority of our patients who do egg donation are extremely happy that they've done it because their whole desire in life is to have a family. And, you know, they have this beautiful baby. And, you know, when you're carrying a pregnancy, that's the nice thing about egg donation as opposed to adoption. You're actually carrying the pregnancy. So you're feeling the baby kicking. The baby is growing in the womb, listening to your voice, listening to your heartbeat. And so Mm. recognizes you as the mother as soon as it's born, you know, so it's it's a very nice. way to solve a problem, if you like, Mm. providing it's right for women. Not everybody will be happy with that, um, Mm. you know, as an option or might not feel comfortable with it. But for those who, you know, go through the issues and and work their way around it, Mm. you know, it's a very nice option for them. It's lovely. There's something so warm in mm. in what you were describing there and mm-hmm. it reminds me of a guest we had a few episodes back who had a baby through sperm donation. Mm-hmm. But very similarly, she said, you know, someone said to her, a fertility nurse actually said to her, when your baby falls off their bike and looks up and mm-hmm. reaches to you, yeah. you're not thinking about, you know, their genetics mm-hmm. or their, yeah. you know, what what sperm donor came from, what egg yeah. came yeah. from, whatever, you no, know. No, not at all. You're not. And it's the same with the baby. The second it is born, when it hears the mother talk, it looks to the mother. Mm. It doesn't look to the father. Mm. It's the mother's voice that it knows straight away. Yeah. You know, and that's, you know, all these things help with the bonding process because mm. that's one of the things women worry about is that they won't feel it's their baby because it's not their genetics. Mm. But, you know, very few women, once they've gone through the whole counselling process that we offer, mm. you know, they very much are ready for this and are very accepting of it. Talk to me about success rates. Is it, is it is it something that's quite successful if you come to that point? Well, if you are, you know, 43 using mm. your own eggs for IVF, the success rates are in the order of 5%. Mm. It's really just not something that, you know, gives you a lot of confidence no. in the outcome when you're investing money in it. Yeah. Whereas with egg donation, when the eggs are being donated from women under the age of 30, then the success rates are in the order of 40 to 50%. Mm. So you can go into the treatment, you know, with a knowledge that if you do three cycles, 90% of women get pregnant, you know. Mm. So, I mean, I'm yeah. not saying everybody will want to do three cycles and not everybody needs to do three cycles. But there are very high success rates when you're using eggs from much younger women. Mm, That's a big percentage difference there. Um, And can you talk me briefly through the logistics as a recipient, what actually is involved? How how is the egg implanted? Is that surgery? Can you talk to me about that? So 
the process for someone receiving an embryo mm. is to take HRT tablets, mm -hmm. so estrogen tablets for 10 to 12 days starting on the first day of their period. They, they then take progesterone for five days mm -hmm. and then transferring the embryo is similar to a smear test. So you put okay. a speculum in and you pass a little catheter through the neck of the womb under ultrasound guidance and the embryo is implanted into the cavity. Okay. So that actual bit of it is much, much simpler than standard IVF. Mm. Yeah, it sounds actually quite straightforward. Oh, it's very straightforward, yeah. Yeah. And, and sorry, I obviously skipped quite a bit forward there in terms of picking your egg donor. Is that in the, is that similar to picking a sperm donor? We've touched on that a lot in the podcast before. Is there a similar kind of process or is it very different? So it's a similar process. Yeah. You know, you can set your own criteria on hair color, eye color, height, skin color. Generally, women aren't that concerned providing no. the characteristics are similar to themselves or their husband. Mm. Um, and then we do blood group matching and cystic fibrosis screening and, you know, other virus screening to make sure. And the donors themselves have full medical histories. So they're evaluated for hereditary and mm -hmm. hereditable genetic diseases so that, you know, we're, we're confident that, you yeah. know, there's, there's nothing serious is going to be passed on. Mm. And you have services in Waterstones that allow treatment for patients who have sourced their own donor. Yeah. Which I'm fascinated about. Can you tell me a bit more about that? So some women who have, you know, either a low egg reserve or are, you know, require an egg donor because of their age, have younger sisters mm -hmm. or, you know, some women have nieces or just very good friends who are willing to donate. That's so um, lovely. So it is very nice. We would always want to assess the donor as well to make sure that she has a good egg reserve, to make sure she's of an appropriate age so that you can give um you know, the, the correct counselling. It feels like a minefield, potentially, yeah. especially legally. Can you talk to me a little bit about, we, we were talking just before we started to record about legal ramifications of, you, you are the legal mother if you've given birth to the child. Yeah. That's that. Full stop. Yeah, in yeah. Ireland. Mm -hmm. So if you're an egg donor and you, you're, someone else has taken your egg and given birth to a child, then mm -hmm. it is their child. Yeah. Yeah. That, I think that's an important thing to note, actually. And so if you do egg donation in Ireland, the yeah. legislation states that the treatment has to go on a register, mm. which means that the person who donated the egg is open identity, will be on a register, yeah. and the child who is created from that egg donor will, at the age of 16, be able to find the actual donor of the egg can be identified. And that may raise issues in the future. That's why the counselling process is so important, mm. is so one tells the child at the youngest possible age mm. so that they're prepared because children cope with information if it's drip fed from a young age. Mm. Whereas if you tell a teenager, I'm not your genetic mother or, you know, mm -hmm. then the teenager who has identity crisis anyway may feel that you've been lying to me all my life about this. Will mm. you be lying about other things? And so it, you know, the counsellors would all say it's important to tell a child from a young age, yeah. you know, the actual truth about their origins in yeah. as far as you can. Yeah, we've touched on that a lot in, in, in previous episodes as well. 
um, on the importance for all these different ways to motherhood mm-hmm. uh, of being open, not just for the child, but for all the children to come, yeah. for everybody, you mm-hmm. know, on mm-hmm. on 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 the amazing miracles mm-hmm. that can be created yeah. now. Yeah. Um. So talk to me about if you are an egg donor. Um. What is the best age to donate eggs? Why would you go and donate eggs? I mean, is it a is there any, I mean, I know it's a surgical process. Are people doing it out of philanthropy? Do they want to just donate their eggs? Yeah, it's a very difficult question, isn't it? Yeah. You know, because, you know, yes, people do it in Ireland for a sister, for an aunt, for a relative. And so you can see that, you know, when there's a strong family bond, that's Mm. why people do it. But why do people do it? Um, for anonymous people or people they've never met, um, you know, and yet there are surrogate women in Ukraine who do that as well, you mm, know. Yeah. Um, it's beautiful. So it, it is very, it, I think it's a very beautiful thing for them to do. And how many eggs do they collect per round? So it's it, not, I know it's probably not as straightforward. It's <laughs> not as straightforward as that, but one would hope that if you had someone who was under 30 with a normal egg reserve, that you would get between 10 or 15 eggs. Okay. Um, and then it depends how many of those eggs are mature and capable to fertilize. Okay. So on average, our patients will be getting about eight eggs, okay. you know, that are mature. So, you know, the aim is that we don't want the person who's donating the eggs to be hyperstimulated. We don't want them to become unwell. And so a moderate stimulation, you know, gets you better quality eggs yeah. and, and gets that sort of number. And is it similar like you're buying straws for from sperm donation? Are you buying kind of, would you buy three eggs or would you buy six eggs if you were doing three rounds? So when we're bringing eggs in from the frozen eggs, we bring in eight eggs. Okay. Um, for our women who are doing the treatment in Alicante, they have uh, a woman in Alicante who is undergoing a fresh cycle of IVF. On the day her eggs are collected, the male partner is there providing the sperm sample, which will fertilize with the eggs. Okay. And then five days later, the embryo is transferred into the female partner. Okay. So if you have eight to ten eggs, you know, we do recommend that only one embryo is transferred. Yeah. And there may be four embryos. So there may be actually three embryos frozen as well as one transferred. So amazing. You know, so it's it's the two processes are slightly different in that one has a fresh egg collection yeah. um, and a fresh embryo transfer. Whereas with the imported open identity eggs, it's a frozen egg. But it can still be a fresh transfer because we can schedule to yeah. match things up. Amazing, isn't it just amazing? It is amazing. <laughs> it's really, I mean, when you yeah. when you talk about fresh eggs, I'm, it's just... It's I know. <laughs> I'm trying to think, is there a better way of saying this? But, no, uh, <laughs> no, but it's, it's just science. It's incredible. It really mm-hmm. is. Um, so I'm, I'm going to have to wrap it up soon. But as a final question, um, and I really could sit here and talk to you for a lot longer. It's such a big topic. Um, but what advice would you have for anybody now who is considering egg donation treatment? I think the thing is always to come for a proper assessment Mm. so that, you know, the most important thing for women who know that egg donation is their route is to check that their uterus is healthy because you don't want polyps and you don't want fibroids. And unfortunately, these are conditions that are commoner as women get older. Mm. And so, you know, we do meet women who sort of come and say, oh, I think I need egg donation. And you find they have quite large fibroids. And so you have to have surgery to remove the fibroids 
And, you know, Mm. it can take three to six months to get that organized, to get over that, Mm. you know, and, you know, there's there's no definite time as to when you can replace an embryo after a, a myomectomy fibroid removal operation. But most people would say wait between three to six months. So, okay. you know, have time your have your essence. assessment sooner rather than later so that, you know, mm. is there anything necessary before you will be accepted for egg donation? And, you know, the same, as I say to everybody, is don't leave it too late yeah. because as we get older, our health deteriorates, so we can get diabetes, we can get high blood pressure, you know, and other problems can intervene. And any medical problems make any pregnancy much more complicated. Mm. Yeah. So good advice. Time is of the essence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Ethna. You're welcome. Uh, it's a fascinating, I have to say, an inspiring area to touch on. And I'm sure our listeners are very grateful for your advice. And a reminder also to our listeners to reach out for help if you need it. Thank you so much. Now, I am delighted to welcome the gorgeous Marion with me here today, who is a specialist fertility counsellor at Waterstone Clinic. Egg donation can be a difficult topic for people to get their heads around. And counselling is so important when embarking on this journey, as with so many fertility journeys. Being able to talk about what might come up emotionally, how you feel, what's worrying you, is essential for mental health um, at this really potentially very challenging time. So how do people get their heads around egg donation? Marion, thank you so much for joining me here today. Thanks so much for having me. Um, You chat to couples and individuals uh, who are embarking on this process. So when they come to you and they sit down, where do you even begin? Okay, so I suppose where I generally begin with couples or individuals who are coming to me is acknowledging the loss that is intrinsic in taking this step. Mm. Because in order to go ahead with donation treatment, you have to acknowledge for yourself that you won't be able to have a child that is genetically yours or genetically your partner's. Mm. And while treatment is fantastic and it's great that it's there as an option, I would never want someone to feel like it's the next step on the road without stopping and acknowledging this is tough going Mm. and that it's okay to feel sad, it's okay to grieve this, and it's okay if you're not delighted to be moving forward to mm. donor treatment. Mm. Um, I think it could be encapsulated by, you know, I'm delighted that we can do this and I'm devastated that we have to. And very often people are carrying both those things that it's great that there is an option for them to have a child, but it's not their preferred option. And I think it's really important that that's in the room before going on to these are the practicalities, this is what we can do and this is how you might feel about it. So I suppose that's usually my starting point with mm. with clients. Mm. It's a huge decision. Yeah. And one that I think nobody is taking lightly. Um, so you talk about implications counselling. Can you tell me a bit about that, about what it means, what it involves? Absolutely. So I suppose before talking to patients about what implications counselling is, my starting point is always to say what implications counselling isn't Mm. and what it isn't is a test. So very often when people hear they have to come in and talk to the counsellor, they're like, oh, my God, I'm going to be assessed. They're going to decide whether or not I can be a good parent. They're going to talk to me about childhood or I'm going to have (laughs) to justify myself. All of these terrible things. So we'll always start by saying this is there's no quiz at the end. I'm not deciding whether or not this is the right treatment for you. I'm here to give you information around what are what we see coming up for clients. Mm. So I suppose that's the first part. And then in terms of what I discuss, it's kind of broken down into three sections. So I talk to them first around 
what are the legal implications, mm. what's legally permissible in terms of donor treatment, um, the register, those sort of things. The second thing I talk to them about is how people generally manage this information with children, how mm. they talk to their children about it, what is the implication if you try not to talk to your child about it, those sort of things. And then the third is, how do I talk to other people about this? Mm. Are you going to share this information widely? Or are you not going to share this information? And it's amazing sometimes when I talk to couples around that, that they haven't talked about that. Mm. And maybe they have differing views of, you know, we'll tell nobody, yeah, well, except for my mother, obviously, or we'll tell nobody. And the other person's like, oh, I thought we were telling people. So just th those sort of things are, are kind of what I cover. And so important to have those conversations at at the beginning stage so that you're together on the journey and you and you know what the other person thinks. Absolutely. And that you have to have agreement on these things to move forward. Yeah. You know, that if one party feels I can't do this unless it's anonymous and the other person feels, well, I can't do it unless the child can access that information, well, then you may not be able to proceed at all. Mm. Uh, so you really do have to tease those things out before you find yourself in the middle of a process mm. where you, you're coming at it from fundamentally different places. Mm. And we, you told me just before we came in here that you have uh, a background as a lawyer. Yes. Which is which is fascinating. I was saying it's such an interesting combination. But actually, as you were filling me in, there's a lot of overlaps in your career as a lawyer and in your career as a counsellor. So can we talk about that first area that you touched on there, about the legal implications it's a fascinating area and it's complicated. And Ireland, am I correct in saying, is quite far behind? Yeah, so I suppose in terms of donor treatment, we have legislation for donor treatment mm -hmm. um, since 2020. Um, we needed it a lot, a long time before 2020, but we have it since 2020. And what that legislation says is that you can't use anonymous donors in Ireland yeah. anymore. So you must use a known donor. Now, that doesn't mean somebody known personally to you, uh, but somebody whose information will be available to your child once your child turns 18. Um, so that information is held centrally by the state in a donor conceived register and your child will be able at 18 to access that information. Um, and so you can't use an anonymous donor in this country. You can't bring in eggs or sperm to this country from an anonymous donor and use them here. Um, so I suppose the legislation here is quite hardline in terms of making sure that that identification piece is there. Mm. Um, it That legislation only applies for people who have treatment here. Mm -hmm. So if people are travelling to other jurisdictions for treatment, even if they're being facilitated by a, a clinic in Ireland, even if they come back and have their baby in Ireland, that doesn't apply to them. Okay. It's where the treatment takes place. Okay, interesting. Rather than where the baby is born. Okay. And in terms of... Um like obviously, there's a biological link between an egg donor and the resulting child. But are there any legal, um, like, does the egg donor have any legal position moving forward once the child is born? So that's a really interesting question. And it's one that patients worry about all of the time. What's the implication of this in terms of the law? So in terms of the law in Ireland, the woman who gives birth to a child is legally the mother, regardless of the genetic material involved, that is the mother. And then there is a presumption that her husband or wife, is the other parent. Um, and that's that's a presumption that can be changed around. So you can put someone else on a birth certificate as long as they're, they're there to sign for it as well. The egg donor under Irish law has no rights whatsoever. So they have no rights to access. They have no rights to information. The child has no right to claim maintenance from them. They have no inheritance rights. Those rights don't exist. In terms of, I suppose, the, any right that does exist, the child has a right to access information about the donor once they turn 18. 
that's the only right. If the child decides not to exercise that, the parents can't decide to go and access the egg donor to say, you know, thank you very much or we'd like to meet you for dinner or whatever. The egg donor can't contact the parents. The egg donor can't contact the child. The only person who has rights in terms of information is the child and it's only an information right. Interesting. So it's one way that, and that's the only the only point of contact. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, so... What feelings kind of, you, you touched on there that that's something that people are very interested in. What other feelings are coming up for, for people when they first sit down with you or throughout the process of counselling? How many counselling sessions do you have with them actually? So what the way we structure it is we have one um, implications counselling session that is mandatory mm-hmm. and both parties attend that and we kind of go through these questions and thereafter it's as needed. So I would always say to people at the end of that session, if you'd like to come back and talk to me, either both of you together or you individually, we'll facilitate that. Sometimes things come up during the implication session that lead us to go into a second session anyway. Mm-hmm. So let's say a couple might come in and maybe very upset in that session and we're dealing with the emotional fallout of that and we don't talk about legislation, we don't talk about treatment options, we don't talk about anything else. And then at the end of that session, I'd schedule and say, well, look, we'll come back and we'll meet again as needed to kind of go through that stuff. So one is mandatory and after that it's kind of as needed. Okay. And the type of feelings that they're having are, you know, obviously initially maybe a bit of grief or, yeah, yeah, or sadness. And are they, are they the majority of feelings that you're kind of dealing with? Yeah, I think grief is the great unacknowledged one around donor treatment and around all infertility treatment. Mm. Those are losses, they're bereavements and they don't always get recognised as such by other people. Um, so certainly, yeah, loss is one that we're dealing with. The other one that comes up a lot is hope, mm. which sounds positive and it is in some ways, but also you know that old saying, it's the hope that kills you. Um, you will have clients feel, I feel hopeful because I've been told that my chances with this are, let's say, 50-50 or something like that. My chances with my own eggs are so much lower. I feel hopeful and then I feel terrified that I'm hopeful because I've been doing this for eight years and I've never got a positive pregnancy test and... Mm. Now, if this doesn't work, it really is the end of the line. So there's that managing that hope piece because it's almost like the more you go up with the hope, the more you can come down. It's a big fall. If it doesn't work, it's a big fall. So managing that is, is a big one that comes up for people. So managing the grief, managing the hope, and then also managing anxiety around, will this be okay? Because I can quote statistics for people, I can get them in contact with, let's say, people who've done it already. But no one can ever say 100%, this is going to work out okay for you. No one can ever say that to anyone who gets pregnant, this will work out okay for you. Um, So there is a lot of anxiety around that. Is it the right thing to do? Is it selfish of us to do this? Is it fair of us to do this? Mm. We're making these decisions and our child ultimately will bear the impact of that. So there's, there's a lot of, I suppose, anxiety around just making the decision and the fact that you can't undo it. It's not like a job or a house or something where you can say, well, if it doesn't work out, we'll move on. Mm. You know, it's, it's big. It's stuff. big. Yeah. And what what kind of coping mechanisms do you give people? I mean, obviously, it must be very individual for each person. But is there any kind of key coping mechanisms that you that you you know, offer to people in various situations? Yeah. Well, I suppose around the the anxiety bit, we try and tease through it with the patient. So I'll try and talk to them about, okay, so you're worried about this. Let's look at it in comparison to other people. Let's see, what do you worry about will be said to your child around this? And maybe we can reality test that and see, well, you imagine they'll go into school and they'll be pilloried, but will that actually happen? You know, can you imagine 
how it will be to tell your mother and what do you fear she might say? Okay, and what would you say back to her? And, you know, to try and work through, I suppose, the reality of those things. Mm. And the other thing is, I think acknowledging that this is big stuff and that it is okay to be overwhelmed by it. Um, I suppose one of the most damaging things that I see for patients is them being told to relax Mm. and then being told to just get on with it and all this sort of stuff. There's a really... um, famous study by a woman in, in Harvard who who went through the impact of infertility and fertility treatment on women. And one of the things she did was rank it as a life stressor and it came back as the same level of stress as a diagnosis for a treatable cancer. Wow. Yeah. So I, I quote that one to patients a lot. I had a patient recently say she'd gone and found the study and she put it on her fridge and so that every time she felt like I'm going mad with all the worry about this, she'd look at it and go, no, I'm not. I'm coping normally with a really, really stressful life event. And it is okay for me to be stressed. It is okay for me to question this. It's the right thing for me to do. And I think normalizing emotions often Mm. is as helpful as trying to explain them away for somebody. To say, rather than how are you going to not feel like this, maybe to look at it and go, how are you going to be okay with the fact that you will feel like this? Yeah. It's looking at the emotions and, Mm. and sitting with them. Yeah. What advice would you have for somebody who is like a sister of someone who's going through fertility treatment or a mother who's someone, you know, who has a daughter or a son going through a fertility treatment. What what advice would you say? I mean, I can imagine it's really difficult for people who have not been through it to understand. But what type of things should they maybe not be saying? And what type of things are helpful to say? Okay. Yeah. And it's really interesting when I meet people out and about outside of work and I tell them what I do. The thing I get asked, I'd say most often is, oh, God, what do you say to someone? Yeah. And often you'll hear someone say, my sister had a miscarriage. We've never talked about it. Mm. My best friend, I think, is going through IVF, but I don't want to mention it. And so I suppose generally as a rule, I would say, if you're unsure as to what to say to somebody, ask them. Mm. And sometimes we have this idea that, well, I don't want to mention it in case I upset her. But they're going to be, they're not upset because you ask them. They're upset because they're going through something upsetting. Mm. So if it is a sister or a friend Maybe to say, you know, I don't know what to say to you around this journey. And would you like to talk about it? Because I'm happy to listen. I'm happy to Google. Do you want me to be the person that you just go and get your nails done with? And you know that when you're out with me, I'm not going to ask you about your plans to have children because we all need that time too. Mm. Um, And just ask, you know, would you like me to check in? Would you like me to not check in? What would be best for you? Um, And I suppose they... Again, I'm like a broken record with it, but don't tell them to relax. <laughs> don't tell them the story of your sister's friend's cousin who just went on holidays and ended up pregnant because oh yeah. those things, they're they're tough going. Mm. Um, and I suppose particularly for, I suppose, women with friendship groups, that if you are someone who's not struggling with their fertility and is maybe thinking about pregnancy announcements or whatever, to maybe just be mindful that that can be tough going for somebody else. And I would say if you're unsure about somebody in your group, maybe that you think they're going through fertility treatment and you're unsure as to how to tell them your own news, text them because it gives them an opportunity to put their game face on before they meet you rather than having to sit opposite you at lunch or at a night out or whatever and deal with it in real time. Um, Mm. Just a little bit of sensitivity around that stuff because that is tough going. Mm. And that must, I mean, that that happens, I'd say, in every friendship group there mm. is. 
you know, at a certain age, there will be one woman who is going through some kind of fertility, you know, issue and probably another woman who's conceived. Um, so I think that's really important and good advice. And I hear you on the relaxing. I don't know where that has come from, that awful damaging myth of just somehow it's a woman's fault and somehow it's going to be resolved by relaxing, whatever that bloody means. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's, you know... Um it is infertility is a medical condition. Mm. We don't treat other medical conditions like, oh, you relax. have asthma, relax. Yeah. You know, it's not, we don't do it with anything else. And it, I understand where it comes from because it, it's a story if someone goes on their holidays and gets pregnant <sighs> after having tried for two years. But nobody tells a story about the nine women who went on holidays and relaxed and didn't get pregnant because exactly. there's no story there. Exactly. You know, but it, it does feed on itself. And it, it's just, I see it in the rooms when I'm talking to women, that idea of, I suppose that sort of pressure on them because what happens often in our own heads is the just relax becomes I'm not pregnant because I'm not relaxed mm. and I'm not relaxed because I'm not pregnant. Mm. So I can't get out of that vicious, vicious cycle. Vicious cycle, yeah. Mm. So damaging and so untrue. Um, so if there's one thing we're going to leave with today, <laughs> you don't need to relax. Don't need to relax. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you touched on at the beginning um, talking to children about this information. What tips do you give and, and how do you talk to people about how they are going to eventually talk to their children? Yeah, so it's something that comes up an awful lot in the rooms. People are really worried about it. And like I've had clients ask for, you know, a recommendation for a child psychologist wow. for their child who hasn't been conceived yet. They're like, we just want to have one in place. Like, you really don't, don't have to worry about that. And I suppose it does touch in on something, which is that this is not a negative thing to tell your child. Mm -hmm. I think it's a starting point. This is not a burden you're putting on your child. It's information and information is neutral. Mm -hmm. So don't present it to your child as this is a big thing now that we have to tell you. Like, <laughs> no, it's not. It's just information. So I suppose the most important factor in how and when you'll tell a child is the child. So you have to meet them and get to know them and have an idea of what their interests are and you'll, you'll tap into that. But we do see that there's kind of levels of information that parents give to children. So with small children, it's all about social conversations. Mm. So you might be talking to a small child about how there are all sorts of different ways for people to have families. Mm. And sometimes people go to special doctors to help them to have a family. And sometimes people have some help to help them have a family. And when I'm talking to people about having that conversation with a kid, say, don't sit down and just talk to them about egg donation families. Talk to them about egg donation and sperm donation and surrogates and adopted children and blended families because it's information about the world around them mm. rather than just this is information just about you. So I suppose that's the first part. You're getting them used to the idea of, you know, mommy and daddy get help to have a baby or two mommies get help to have a baby or whatever it will be. There are lovely little books out there for kids. Mm. Um, NISIG, the National Infertility Support Information Group, do beautiful books at the moment. They're about a little family of otters who have a baby otter using a donor. They're absolutely adorable. Um, so I really like those. But for small kids, that's where I would pitch it. As they get older, you're starting looking at biological information. So explaining to them what's involved biologically in using a donor. Mm. The best rule of thumb I've seen as to when it's appropriate to have that conversation is, can your child explain the facts of life to you? Mm. Because until they can, they don't have the building blocks needed to understand this. But so you gauge that as you're going along. Something that comes up in research is, as working well with children around this time is to talk to them about donation services in general. So talk to them about the blood bank, about organ donors, oh, about yeah. bone marrow donors, all of those things, so that they have an idea that Human beings give cells to other human beings to help them. Yeah. It's, it's a thing that we do. And in Ireland, 
we don't have an egg bank, we don't have a sperm bank, we won't because of our population size probably ever have one, but we have a blood bank on every corner. Mm. And so if your child can understand the concept of people giving a pint of blood to somebody else to help them, it makes it easier for them to understand how someone would give an egg cell or a sperm cell to, to help someone else. Mm. So that can be really helpful around that age group. And then from about probably late childhood onwards, it's it switches from being about how do I tell my child about this to how do I talk with my child about this? So they know then, right, you're a donor conceived. Um, they probably have the right to access information about that donor if they've had treatment in Ireland or they don't if, if their parents have had treatment in another jurisdiction. How does that sit with them? How do they feel about being donor conceived? Are they very interested in it? Do they not care at all? Mm. Um, do they want to talk about it? Do they want to explore it? Do they want to know where their donor was from? Do they want to know about that country? Have they questions about what it means for their medical status? You know, those sort of things. So you're kind of meeting them where they're at. Mm. I suppose the longer it goes on, we definitely see for people, they'll say it stops being a defining thing about your child very quickly. They're not the donor baby yeah, or the donor child or the donor teenager. It's a thing about them. You might end up talking to them about it every week for a few months while they're engaged and then they might mention it again for a year. Mm. So it's it's about meeting them where they're at. And I think about feeling confident yourself as a parent that you can do it. And if you can't, go get help. There's There's tons of help. There's tons of resources out there. So go and ask someone if you if you don't know how to bring up the topic or whatever, hmm. go and get that assistance to to do it rather than kind of going, oh, I'm not going to talk about it now because <laughs> and then because it becomes this bigger and bigger thing. Then we're like, oh, Jesus, we have to tell the child and we haven't told them and yeah. are we going to tell them? So I think if you the more you engage with it, the easier it gets. Yeah. And I think that kind of information for any child, no matter how they've been conceived, is is so important that they understand that there is a rainbow of different families out there. And I hope that's something we're moving towards. I, I feel like it is. Yeah, I think it is. Um, I was dealing a while back with uh, Mother's Day cards in a primary school and I was really conscious that the words the teacher used was, who do you want to make your Mother's Day card for? Mm. Which I thought was really interesting. So it's, don't assume that there's one mother. Maybe there'll be more than one, maybe there isn't, maybe it's a grandmother, maybe it's a foster carer, whatever it will be. But that sort of idea that start questioning in the class and that will allow kids to tell their own story of, well, actually, I have two mums or actually this is whatever my situation is. Yeah, really nice. Um, and what about family, friends, wider circles, about telling them or not telling them? How do you talk about that with your with your clients? Yeah, so I suppose apart from your child. I would look at it that nobody else has a right to the information. So I think with every other person, you're weighing up your need for privacy against your need for support. If you need support, you talk to people. If you need privacy, you don't. Um, but I wouldn't ever want someone to feel, I don't want to tell this person, but I should or mm. I have to or I must. I, I don't believe that's true. I don't believe that anybody else has the right. And very often I'll say to clients, you don't really know how other people's children are conceived, nor would you want to. Hmm. It's not really dinner table conversation for most people. <laughs> and that you have a right to privacy, even if you're having fertility treatment, you still have a right to privacy. That doesn't change. Um, I suppose something that comes up a bit is, though, if you're going to be open and honest with your child about it, your child is, you know, the general rule of don't say anything to a five-year-old. You don't want them to repeat in Tesco. Mm. Kind of, that's generally how that works. <laughs> there are ways around that. You know, you can keep the information general with your child and then so if they're going to Nana and saying you know some people have help having babies that's fine mm -hmm. if you're going to say donor egg to a five year old and they're going to go to Nana well then Nana will work it out I suppose another thing people do often is they'll decide we won't tell anybody until we've told the child mm. and then once the child knows we'll decide then who in their life will know so the people close to them then will go and tell those people 
Um, and we'll kind of play it by ear and we'll have the child engaged in, well, do you want to go and tell mm. Nana? Do you want this person to know? Do you want that person to know? Um, so I don't think there is one specific way to do it. Mm. But what I would notice from talking to people over the years is that people's right to privacy or people's need for privacy is probably at its strongest at the beginning stages. So when someone's accessing treatment, when they're deciding whether or not they're going to do it, pregnancy, until the baby arrives, often there's a high level of privacy needed to make them secure in their decision. Um, and there's a lot of stuff around what if I tell people, then what will I say about them commenting who the baby looks like and all of that stuff that gets worrisome. Whereas you see as the kids get a bit older, I think that you go, you get a level of comfort of somebody having an issue with my child because they're a donor conceived just wouldn't matter to me anymore. Yeah. Someone said the child didn't look like me. It wouldn't bother me, or, you know, because I know they're my child. I was pregnant with them. I gave birth to them. Mm. I did everything with them, you know, to get them from there to primary school or whatever. I think people relax more into it and yeah. that allows them to be a bit more open. Not always, but often there is that sense of softening. So I would never want someone to feel pressurised to make a disclosure before they're ready to do it. So I think it will work its way out over time. Yeah, I, I, I really like that advice because I can imagine that you would feel, I, I personally anyway, that I had to tell everybody immediately. But you don't. There's no rush. You, you know, if you want to in your own time, feel your way into it, as you said. Really nice advice. So there'd be listeners who might be about to embark on this journey or maybe they already have. Um, but certainly for those people who are considering it, what advice would you give to them? I would say come in and have a chat with us or come in and have a chat with somebody. Um, because often when people front up to us, they'll have read a load of stuff online. Mm. And some of it will be amazing and some of it will be awful. And they're boggled by the time they get in the door. So I would say, come in and have a chat. It's not like once you come in the door that you absolutely have to do treatment. I would frequently talk to people who are doing it really to rule it out. Mm. You know, so they're coming in to have a session to go, this is what's involved financially, this is what's involved medically, this is what's involved in terms of counselling. And then they go away with that information and they go, no, it's not for us. But I'm glad that we went through it. We knew what we were saying no to. Whatever. Mm. So I would say, come in and get a sense of what's actually involved in terms of timeline, in terms of finances, in terms even of sitting down and going, what would it be like to talk to a child about this? What would it be like to tell my family or not tell my family or, or whatever that might be? And just like you're saying, you know, very often people will come in going, I have to tell my family and I don't think they're going to be happy. And then they leave going, actually, I don't have to no. tell my family. Mm -hmm. So now I'm happy to go ahead, you know. So I would say get information, make sure you get good quality information because you can't make an informed decision until you have that. Mm. When we hear that from all of our experts, you know, Dr. Google is not not the place to be going. There's terrible information out there yeah. masquerading as, as proper medical information, which is not yeah. true. And it's Google, you know, any of those algorithms are just designed to keep you on. So there's this experiment they talk about, you know, if you put in, why do I have a headache? Oh, yeah. Like 90 something percent of the time people have headaches because they haven't drank enough water. But if you go into Google, they'll say, well, it might be that you haven't drank enough water, but you might also have brain cancer. Here's 10 <laughs> signs of brain cancer. Because <laughs> it wants to keep you online. Yeah. That's what all those algorithms do. But of course, so you get served worst case scenario mm. after worst case scenario after mm. worst case scenario. Um, so it's useful to just pull back from that and go, yeah. OK. Go and talk to a person. Go and talk to a person and yeah. get information and then make your decision. Yeah, put the phone away. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, well, Marion, we're going to have to leave it there. But thank you so much. That was a really informative conversation. And um, thank you also to Dr. Lowe, uh, who joined us earlier in the episode. And thank you to Waterstones, our partners in this podcast. Uh, thank you also to wonderful Team Image. And to you, dear listener, thank you for listening. And we will see you next week. <laughs>